0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want to begin reading in verse 12. I know that we have all come out of a Monday through Friday, and we're all going back into a Monday through Friday. And even now, as we come to sit under the Word, there are a lot of things that could be on our minds, plans, People, especially those of you who are with children in the worship. One of the blessings of the Sabbath is knowing with full confidence that God has blessed us with the gift of being able to let go of everything else in the world. And we learn in the parable of the sower, one of the things that would choke out the word and cause it to be unfruitful was the deceitfulness of riches and the, the things of the world, the desires of the world, the thoughts of the world. Not, not necessarily bad things, just other things that choke out the Word. So we're blessed with the gift of a day when we can, we can in good conscience, let it all go and give our attention to the Lord and His Word. Again, I know that's easier said than done, but let's hear the Word of God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely Do it. Brothers, pray for us. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we could only wish that We came to your word with the reverence and the awe that it deserves. We could only wish that we understood what it meant to be in the assembly of the firstborn. We wish we understood what it meant that even as we gather to worship now, we gather with angels in festal garments, saints who've gone before us, spirits of the righteous men made perfect. And though we can't see all of these things, Your Word tells us it's true that to gather in the assembly, the the church of the living God, is a fearful thing because You are a consuming fire. I pray, Lord, that our attention to the the preaching of Your Word would be as the attention given to a consuming fire. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would protect us against the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches that might choke out this Word. Protect us against the evil one who would love to come and pluck it away before it even takes root. Forgive us for the psychology of the world that tries to convince us that there's something in this hour just a little bit more important than the preaching of the Word of God. Lord, help us to hear from your mouth. If all we hear is a man, then we've wasted our time. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So for the last several weeks, we've been focusing our attention on the role that the Word of God plays in the life of every Christian. We've looked at how our devotion to the Word of God is essential in our personal holiness. And then last week we saw that we can actually expect, we ought to expect, a standard of righteousness and holiness to be produced in the life of those who've come to saving faith and who've shown that commitment to the Scriptures. Now, if I could summarize all of the last three weeks in a a logical process, it would sound something like this. The Word of God is preached, the gospel is preached, and the gospel comes in power... Now we can insert into this all that we've learned about effectual calling and we'll learn tonight. The Word of God comes in power and the Spirit of God regenerates a sinner and gives them in that moment spiritual light. They go from darkness to not darkness. And we can call that the breaking of dawn. It's not noonday. It's, it's not full knowledge. It's not full comprehension. But there, it's not darkness. Spiritual dawn breaks And from that point, the life of the believer is one of a constant returning to the law and to the testimony. Out into the world, out into a circumstance, in the mind to a a problem in life, and back to the teaching and to the testimony like a mother bird with, with newly hatched chicks. She flies out of the nest to go get a bug and she brings it back. And she flies out and gets a mealworm and she brings it back. And she goes out and finds another bug and she brings it back. It's just this constant giving of herself to this back and forth. That's the life of a Christian. We're we're running to the law and to the testimony and then we go out into the world. We go to our spouse. We go to our children. And we come back. How how ought I to act? And then we go and we're doing this. That's, That's the Christian life. To the law and to the testimony. And that consistent pattern produces an increasingly consistent holiness across the broad spectrum of life. Over time, you've you've brought so many issues to the Word of God that you begin to actually think the thoughts of God after Him. It's like you can almost predict what it's going to say. You can almost predict where you're going because you've been somewhere similar before. You begin to develop this holiness And over time, the life of the believer becomes more and more aligned with God's Word and God's law. And therefore, you are increasingly more holy. The believer becomes actually, practically righteous. And it is not wrong to look at someone in that place and say, That's a holy man. That's a righteous person. That's what we've seen for the last three weeks. And hopefully, as we've talked about these things, your primary thought processes have been aimed at your own personal habits with the Word of God, because that's what I've been really trying to push. I want to I try to push everyone back into a corner and, and force you to deal with your individual relationship with God's Word and your own Christian walk. Now today I want to sort of step out of that corner and, and look at this all of this from another perspective Uh, the same issue from a different perspective that is less private. It is personal in the sense that every individual believer must have their own dealings with God, but it's not private. All of our spiritual growth is always personal, but it's not always private. As a matter of fact, the primary means that God has given for the individual saint to grow in holiness We just heard from the psalm to walk from that state of conversion all the way to the state of glory through what we might call the wilderness of the Christian life. The primary means that God has given are public means. They're corporate. That doesn't mean that they they are not personal. They are personal. Every individual must deal with God in a corporate way, in a public way. So we have things like corporate prayer. Paul told Timothy, I desire that in every place the men should pray. That's a means of grace. When a man stands up and leads out audibly in the congregation, God uses that to give grace to everyone who hears. To remind us, I've got a brother who is willing to bring this congregation and my family into the presence of God. I've got a brother whose heart is burning with the same things with which my heart burns. And I hear Him praying the same kind of prayers that I pray. That's a means of grace. It's encouraging. It edifies the saints. The sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. A lot of times we we kind of have our our blinders on when we're doing that. But even out of the corner of our eyes we can see somebody else's hand going up. And we're reminded, I'm not in this by myself. In some churches when they take the Lord's Supper they'll all say together, Until He returns. Until, until we see Him again. Because they want to be reminded that this is not just private. It's, it's a, it is personal. I have to eat it. I have to drink it. But there are people around me who are doing the same things. And I'm not by myself. The singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We might think that it's not that big of a deal that we kind of sing like this. And we don't want anyone to hear what we're saying. Because we just know that our voice is not that great. And... We might not think that that's that big of a deal. What that is is pride, withholding grace from those around you. Because the Bible says, it doesn't just say, when you get together in the church, sing some songs to God. It says that we are to be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we sing, we are taking the words of Scripture, the truths of Scripture, the doctrines of the Bible, and we are putting them to music, and teaching one another. And again, I'm reminded, I'm not in this by myself. And I hear someone else, maybe it's in key, maybe it's not in key, but I'm hearing them resonate with me that these are the truths that we believe. We're teaching and admonishing. It's a public means of grace. The fellowship of the saints over the lunch table, over the supper table, when, when I take my experience and I can bring it to bear on someone else's life, or I can hear a personal situation in another brother's sister that helps me to pray specifically for them. Or I hear an issue and I can get out the Word of God and say, well, this is what I've learned, and we use those gifts. That's a public means of grace, the fellowship of the saints. And there's also the preaching ...of the Word of God, which is the one that comes to our minds most often. We all get together, we can see everyone in a room together, and the Word of God is going forth. These are all public means by which God has promised to communicate grace to the individual saint... ...as He uses the other gifts that He's given to the body. And the whole body is built up, we see in Ephesians 4. Christ gives gifts to His church, and the gifts are used so that every part of the body then begins to work together. And if you read the the passage, we've looked at it before, the body builds itself up in love. And if you're paying attention, you think, "Well, I thought we just said this is from Christ, but now you're telling me the body builds itself up? How can the body build itself up if, if all of this is from Christ? Well, Christ gives the gifts... We use the gifts corporately and the body builds itself up. Now of these public means of grace, the one that is central and primary, the one that takes the place of preeminence over them all, is the preaching of the Word of God. And we could go back to Ephesians 4 and see that. He gave apostles... Prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, offices of men whose job was to put out the word. In his opening lecture in a series on preaching and preachers, Martin Lloyd Jones said, and I quote, I would say without hesitation, that the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest and most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Now, listen to that first statement. The most urgent need in the Christian church today He's saying this back in, I believe, it was the 70s, is true preaching. Now, assuming that the doctor knew something about which he spoke, assuming that maybe he was 95% accurate, maybe preaching, maybe you don't agree that it's the most important thing, the most urgent need, but let's assume maybe it's in the top five of the most urgent needs in the Christian church. I think he's correct in what he says. But taking that statement for what it is, I want to do a little survey of the congregation that's going to help me as we move forward in this, in, in looking at this perspective on the Word of God. And I want you to feel free here. We're all, we're all family here, so let's just enter into a time of survey. Raise your hand. If you can say, I think I just heard the air leave from the room as soon as I, as soon as I said, raise your hand. <gasps> raise your hand if you can say with a, with a bit of confidence that you spent at least five hours this week in sermon preparation for the sermon that is presently being delivered. Okay, hands down. Three hours. Okay, hands down. I'm saying that for the sake of those in the front row who don't know how many hands are going up. Two hours. You can say with a bit of confidence, before God, I spent at least two hours in preparation for the sermon that's being delivered right now. Okay, hands down. One hour. With confidence, I spent... One hour in preparation for the sermon currently being delivered. Okay. The survey is complete. You can put your pencils down. Now, I want to take what Lloyd-Jones said, which I believe is true, and compare that with the results of our survey. The most urgent need in the Christian church today is true Preaching. And yet, as far as I could tell by the survey, there's only one person in this room who has spent at least one hour in preparation for the sermon that's being delivered. And I don't think that's uncommon. I don't think we we stand out in that regard. Because the average church member is under the impression that the preparation of the sermon is none of their business. Most of us grew up in churches like this. The typical mentality is the preaching of the Word of God is the business of one man in any given worship service. That's his business. And, and until that's actually taking place, and I'm sitting and listening the lay people need not bother themselves with it at all. After all, it's not my gift, it's not my calling, it's not my office. He's God's man, so we'll let him do what God's man does and we'll come and we'll sit and receive what he brings. Now there is a sense in which some of that perspective is true because not everybody's a preacher. But does that necessarily imply that the church members have no responsibility at all in the area of sermon preparation. And by that phrase, sermon preparation, I don't mean preparation like you would prepare supper. But I mean preparing for the sermon. Preparing for the hour in which the sermon goes forth. If I phrase it that way, do you think that the results of our survey would change at all? Very rarely do you find a church member who can say with confidence that they've devoted an entire hour of their week preparing for the preaching of the Word of God. So let's put put this picture together. Step back and and look at what's happening. You have a man or a couple of men who've spent a collaborated effort that, that equals... It amounts to literal 24-hour days preparing to bring the Word of God to the people of God. And the people of God have spent maybe minutes preparing for that moment. And we wonder why there's so little power. We wonder why there's so little application. There's, we wonder why sermons go unheeded. Why they're lost to the memory so quick. It's just gone. By the time we're sitting at the table, we couldn't tell you the first point of the sermon. We wonder why our minds wonder so easily. The least little thing. And our mind is gone. Can you imagine the children of Israel on the foot, at the foot of Mount Sinai wondering about what they're going to do tomorrow? What, what my plans are for the week? The children of Israel spent three days consecrating themselves to hear the Word of God on Mount Sinai. Three days. And we typically come to that and we say, well, that was sort of an anomaly. That was a special time. New Covenant worship is much more relaxed. It's it's different than it was back then. I would remind you Hebrews chapter 12 teaches very clearly that New Covenant worship is not less demanding. It's more demanding. More, not less. More demanding. And yet, there is so little preparation on behalf of the average church member to come into the presence of God and hear what God has to say. So then the question, hopefully, is what is the responsibility of the average church member in the area of sermon preparation? That is, preparing for the preaching of the Word of God in any given worship service. What, what could you possibly do? There are several things. We've talked before about things like family worship. Family worship is, a, is the, the training grounds of corporate worship. Corporate worship is where everybody else in the church gets to see how your family worship's going. And we all have to just come to terms with that. There are several things that you can do. But the one I want to focus on for the next several weeks is the one that I think is the most needful, the most important of them all. The most important responsibility that the average church member has in preparing for the sermon is found in the text that we read, 1 Thessalonians 5.25. Brothers, pray for us. Now there are several lines of reasoning that I want to use over the next several weeks to really, I'm to, I pulled you out of the corner, I'm going to try to push you back into the corner with Scripture. But I just want to start today with just a basic, very simple, exegetical foundation. And I want you to see from the Scriptures that it is the duty of the saints of God to pray for those who minister the Word. So notice first... We've got four words. Notice first Paul's audience, those to whom Paul speaks. He refers to them as brothers. Now since we're not doing a uh, sequential expository series on the letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, we we can use this opportunity, do a little bit of a background work, and answer the question, who are these brothers to whom Paul writes? Well, we could flip back to... Chapter 1, verse 1, this is how you do this. Who's he talking to? Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, that's Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians. You, you, you'll know them, right? The saints of Thessalonica. So we have to get to know these saints a little, a little better based on the looks. In Acts chapter 17, in Paul's second missionary journey, he goes to the, the city of Thessalonica. The the Scriptures tell us that he stays there for three consecutive Sabbaths, reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath. And the fruit of his ministry was a few Jewish converts, some devout Greeks and some of the leading women. And based on 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, probably some pagans. It says that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So we have, in this word, brothers, a mixture of multi-ethnic, cultural, multi-background people have been ushered into the kingdom of Christ, and Paul calls them, collectively, brothers. He's speaking to the saints there. With regard to their spiritual maturity, I said that he reasoned with them for three consecutive Sabbaths, but most commentators agree that he was probably there a little longer than just those three weeks. But it wasn't long after fruit began to be produced. We read in Acts chapter 17 and verse 5, The Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. So there was a riot breaks out, and a mob attacks the house of a man named Jason, And in Acts 17, 10, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So he's preaching. There's some fruit. There's a riot. There's a mob. There's an attack. And immediately, get them out. And they're whisked away to Berea. Paul went from Berea to Athens, from Athens to Corinth... And it is from Corinth, more than likely, that he's writing back to this church in Thessalonica. So these Jews, these Greeks, these several pagans, now turned followers of Christ, have not been converted very long. They're young believers in a young church. Paul hadn't been there all that long. He hadn't been gone all that long. From the time of their conversion to the time of their receiving this letter was not a very long time. And I haven't done the study to find out exactly how long it would have been, but it wasn't very long. Now consider also their ecclesiastical adversity. We know that the persecutions that they suffered while Paul was there didn't stop once he left. Some of the Jews actually followed him to Berea. And Acts 17, 13 says that they were agitating and stirring up the crowds there. So imagine this ministry. He leaves the city. He's preaching somewhere else. And here come people from the last city agitating and stirring up the crowds against him. At the same time, back in the city of Thessalonica, the strife continued there. So much so so that in 2 Thessalonians... So this would be the second letter that he writes back to this city. Chapter 1, verse 4, he says... Therefore, our, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Not that you had endured, but that you are enduring. It's, it's still happening. So Paul writes to a young church full of young Christians who is itself under the pressures of outsiders to renounce their faith, return to the religion of their fathers, and Paul calls them brothers. He hadn't known them very long, hadn't been away from them very long. He writes back to them after only a short while and he uses one of the most intimate terms of endearment that he could use. Brothers. Now think about what he is implying when he calls these new saints brothers. He's implying that they have a common parentage. That is, he addresses them as those who share in a common spiritual parent, namely the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's now their father too. The gospel of God has come in power. They have received the gift of the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of adoption. So they have now been adopted into the same family that Paul is in, the same spiritual family, with the apostle. He calls them brothers. He, he brings himself down or brings them up. and They're all on a level playing field now as brothers with a common parentage. He also implies a common purpose. We might say the family business is now their common interest. What God had done among them and was continuing to do around the world was a collective interest. They share in that now. They've been brought into the family business. And they also share common priorities because of that. Paul had come to them with one primary goal. Preach the gospel. Advance the kingdom of Christ. So he comes and unbeknownst to them at the time... That which Paul brought to them would soon take root in them as well. So they start off by hearing this strange man in the synagogue. And they're watching as outsiders. And they begin to hear. And the Spirit begins to work. And all of a sudden, they're not on the outside anymore. They're on the inside. They're with Him. And the priority of the preaching of the gospel and the advance of Christ's kingdom was not this... Thing that was separate from them that they were hearing about and they were intrigued about and maybe had questions about that they could view from afar or analyze or consider from afar. They have been brought near and they now share in the apostles' priorities. And so he calls them brothers. And notice that in this verse he does not speak to them first to distinguish himself from them, but to address the solidarity that they all share in Christ, in His kingdom, in the family, in the mission, we're brothers. In essence, he's implying we're in this together. We're brothers. We're in the same family. We've got a common interest, common goal. We're all chasing after the same thing. So he uses a term of endearment and filial relation. Second, notice... It's of that group that Paul makes this request. Brothers, pray. Now, I'm saying request because it's... Very often we don't have a time of taking prayer imperatives. We all request prayer from others. We're asking that someone pray, but this is an imperative, a command. Pray. This is the common term for prayer. A combination word that means literally to bring your wishes to, and it's always implied, God. You have desires, bring them to God. You have wants, bring them to God. Now think of all the things that have to be consciously recognized in the heart and in the mind for one to literally pray, to really pray, based on that simple definition of bringing my desires to God. You'd have to recognize that you have, you have desires. You're consciously aware of something happening inside of you. Some, some urges, some wants, some tuggings in a general direction. You have to recognize that God is God. Remember back to Isaiah? Shall not a people inquire of their God? This is what it means to have a God. Necessarily implied in having a God is bringing prayers... You don't have this God if you're not praying to this God. But if He is your God, you are a prayer. A prayer to the one true God. Because of all of His Godness, you bring to Him your prayers. As David would say, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Everything that's inside of me, I'm going to bring it to you. Because you're my God. You have to recognize the personal duty of, that you have to bring those desires to God. That's that's what you do. You pray. So Paul has already assumed their common parentage, their common purpose, their common priorities. And now, because of all of that, he can with boldness issue this solicitation for prayer from them because he knows their God is my God. We, We serve the same God. We have the same perspective on what we do with our wants and our desires. The spirit that is in me is in them. The burnings that are in their soul is in my soul or are in my soul. The kingdom that I'm laboring for, well, that's their kingdom too. Surely they're interested in this kingdom. He assumes that their prayers are going to harmonize with his prayers. Their prayers are going to go up to the same God that his... Prayers go up to the God and Father of them all. The God and Father is going to hear the collected and united agreeing prayers of all of His children, pleading for that which He already longs to do among them. And He will answer those prayers. Consider the implications of Paul's asking or this, this request, this command for prayer. He assumes they are praying people. He assumes they share His concerns. He assumes that the continuation of the ministry of the Word is not something that's His job. They're, going, th- that they're thinking, well, that's His job, but we're going to sit here, even though we've benefited from the ministry of the Word, we're just going to sit here and pretty much ignore the fact that the ministry of the Word is still going out somewhere else. He doesn't assume that. He assumes the very opposite That because the Word of God had come to them in power, He can then request for them, You pray for the continued ministry of the Word. He assumes they have a responsibility, a share in this ministry. It's not Him and them at first. It's brothers. And so He pleads with them, Brothers, pray, you who are My brothers... Sons of the same father. Citizens of the same kingdom. Siblings in the same family. With a common elder brother. You've seen with your own eyes the power of the ministry of the word, the preached gospel. You've experienced it. So pray. They had seen the weakness of men. And so he, he uses these things to leverage them into prayer. He pleads them to join him in the ministry. Thirdly, notice the specific subject of these prayers. Brothers, pray for us. Paul makes reference now to a distinct group. Many times in the epistles when you read these first person plural pronouns, we, us, our, the the author is, is hoping that you will include yourself in the same group that he's in and you're all recipients of the same blessings, we might say. Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We all get that stuff. It's, it's uniting. But here, he's just addressed another group and called them brothers. And then he turns right around and refers to us. So there's brothers and there's us. So the question is, who does this us refer to? We can look back very quickly. Verse 12, the first verse we read. We ask you, brothers. Chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you. In the Lord Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart. Go all the way back to verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, see the back and forth. There's a we and us, a we and us, a we and us. So who's the us? Brothers, pray for us. Who's the us? It's a reference to the apostle and his apostolic band of traveling evangelists, church planters, preachers. Those with a distinct ministry. A distinct group with a distinct ministry. I want to go back now and read to you chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. And this is a longer excerpt, but I... I want you to hear and notice the focus of Paul's engagement when he was in Thessalonica. When he distinguishes himself from them, what is the thing that distinguishes it? Well, it's, it's this ministry that he had. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been entrusted by God or approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts." Already ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you would become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not burden any of you, or be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you Believers, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you, believers." Now ask yourself, what was the the distinguishing ministry that these men had over against or laid side by side with that of the Thessalonians? And I think it's very clear that these men were preachers of the Word. That was their distinct ministry. They declared the gospel. They made appeals. They were entrusted with the gospel. And they spoke. They came with words. They came with the gospel of God. They proclaimed the gospel of God. They exhorted, they encouraged, they charged. They came with the word of God. That was their ministry. So, taking that into consideration, seeing that every reference in the first person plural pronouns like us and we refers specifically to Paul and Silas and to Timothy and any others who might have been with them, who are now continuing on this, this missionary journey, it's only reasonable, I think, to, us, to see in this request a special prayer request. I don't think we could read this request and say, I bet what Paul's talking about, I bet he wants us to pray for his mom. We, we would never think that. We would not read this and say, I bet something's happened with Lois or Eunice, and Timothy wants us to pray for him." We wouldn't say, you know what, uh, Silas's parents back in Lystra, I bet they really miss him. Let's pray for Silas' parents. That's, that's not what they read in these words. If that's not clear enough, we could flip to the parallel passage, which we should all know very well. 2 Thessalonians 3.1, concluding that letter, he says practically the same thing. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you." See, he goes a little further. Here's the purpose. Spread of the Word. Pray for the spread of the Word of God. So while he does address the common bond that they share, brothers, he also makes a distinction between he and they, with regard to the specific role that he had as a minister of the Word of God. And he uses that again to leverage their special prayers for his special and distinct ministry. So then, we have in this text the apostolic directive that the saints who have been beneficiaries of the ministry of the Word, have the responsibility to pray for those whose duty it is to minister the Word. Now walking back through what we saw about this church, we can see that their young faith was not a deterrent. Paul didn't get to Corinth and begin to write back to this young church and say, well, you know, they're, they're young believers. They've got so many other things on their plate with regard to discipleship. and they're, they're like four questions into the catechism. I don't want to bother them with my ministry and ask them for prayer. They've got their own issues. He doesn't say that. He doesn't assume that they're so immature in the faith that their prayers are not going to be useful. Their young faith was not... A deterrent to him soliciting prayer from them. So then, how much more we who have been, most of us Christians for some time, how much more we, a church, coming up on eight years of existence? Their young faith was no deterrent, their affliction was no deterrent. Paul doesn't say, you know what, you got your own troubles. You've got your own things you're dealing with. I know you've got your own issues that I can't help with and so you just deal with you and I'll deal with me. You do your job and I'll do mine. You're just... No, he doesn't. Their affliction, their own personal struggles were no deterrent to him saying, Brothers, pray for us. How much more than we whose lives, our lives are carried out to a standard of ease and comfort to which the majority of the Christians in the world today and throughout history could not even imagine. We live in prosperity. It scares me how comfortable we have it. And if he was not deterred by their affliction to ask for prayer, then how much more should we with our free time and our leisure time, and our vacation time, and our time off, and whatever, our lunch breaks. Imagine the concept of a lunch break in the world of vocation. And yet, he didn't fear, he didn't stop from asking them for prayer. How much more we, how much more time could we devote to the prayers, the ministry of the word? And I'm not against lunch breaks, by the way. But... We have it so easy. We are pampered. Their separate functions within the church was no deterrent. He didn't say, as he began to pin the words, Brothers, pray for us. He didn't stop and say, Wait a second. They've got no idea what I go through. They, they wouldn't have a clue what it means to be a preacher. They've never prepared a sermon in their life. Why would I even ask for prayer. They don't know what they're praying for. He doesn't say that. He doesn't keep silent because they wouldn't really understand. He saw them as brothers. They had a common bond and a common purpose. They hadn't known each other very long, and yet he, he goes ahead and says, You're my brothers. I'm going to bring you into my ministry. I'm going to open the door of my ministerial office, and I'm going to ask you to come in, and I want you to pray for the ministry of the Word. How much more than we, who've been laboring together for years? How much more we who hopefully are expecting that our children and our grandchildren are going to take up the ministry that we've begun and continue it on. That's the the level of communion I hope we have. Then ought we not to all feel a little bit of a personal investment in the ministry of the Word, the the most important thing in the Christian church? I think we should. Paul knew the vital importance of the public ministry ministry of the word Paul knew and was well aware of his own weakness Paul knew that for all of his preaching if the power of God did not accompany it it was useless He might as well stand up in front of people and do like David did and just start drooling down his beard and go home if the spirit does not come it's useless it's just words So, in the coming weeks, I want to try to urge that I want to I want to press that the vital role of the preaching of the word of God in the kingdom of Christ, the weakness of those who are preaching. Some and then I want to lay out some specific ways that you can incorporate this into your life and topics to pray for. Because as we just saw, Paul didn't say he didn't just leave it at pray for us, but he goes on to explain. Here are some things. Here are the requests. I want to I want to give you three things to consider. Just as as introduction to this topic. First consider the importance Paul places on the ministry of the word. Just think about this. Go home and think. How important is the word? The the public proclamation of the word. How important is that to Christ's kingdom? He says in Romans 1 beginning at verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome for I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek he wanted to he was eager to do it and then in 1 Corinthians 9:16 he says if i preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me woe to me if i preach not the gospel it was at one and the same time a delight I'm urgent. I want to. I desire to preach the gospel. And at the very same time, it was an obligation. Woe to me if I don't. I can't not. The public proclamation of the Word of God was an obligation and a delight. Why? Because he's fully convinced of its power. He is convinced. He has saw the power of the Word of God in his own life, in the lives of others. He's so convinced, he gives himself to it. He says, I can't not. And hopefully those who stand here would say, I want to and I can't not. Secondly, consider the weight that He lays upon prayer. We'll look at some of these in more detail. I just want to read to you a a litany of, of verses. Romans 15.30 I appeal to you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 1.11 You also must help us by prayer. Ephesians 6 18 and 19, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that, the, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Philippians 1:19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Colossians 4, 3, at the same time pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. Philemon, verse 22, I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Hebrews thirteen eighteen. pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Boom, 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 boom. Pleading for prayers, asking for prayers, begging for prayers. Now go back to what we know about the apostle Paul. When it came to his physical necessities, there were some churches he would go to. He would not take money. He said, "I'll work before I accept money from you," because he didn't want them to have any hold on his ministry. When it came to his physical necessities, he would write, "Not that I write in, uh, uh, not that I speak of being in need. I'm fine." beaten and afflicted and cast out and almost killed, but I'm fine, don't worry about me physically. But when it came to prayer, he had no embarrassment whatsoever saying, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. I need your prayers, I need your prayers. I wonder if you've ever noticed just his repeated requests for prayer throughout the New Testament over and over and over again. How many things do you do as a Christian that you discern as your duty as a follower of Christ based on the weight of one passage of Scripture. One text says it, you do it. Because the Bible says do it. And yet here we have the New Testament littered with requests for prayer. And how little do we do it? Lastly, consider the obligation laid upon those who are called to pray. The obligation laid upon those who are called to pray. That's you. Let me ask, is it important to you to be a part of a church with a high view of preaching? With a, with a high view of the Word of God. See, right now those things are kind of in vogue. Once they start making memes about it, you know it's, it's popular and people are into it. Expository preaching. Preach the Word. People are into preaching. How important is it to you that the Word of God come with specific searching, probing applications so that by the end of the sermon you feel like you've been speared to the back wall with your clothes off and everybody's looking at you laughing? Because the Word of God has come in such power that it has opened you up and laid you bare before God. Now, not many people making memes about that yet. That's what it means when the Word of God comes in power. The conscience is convicted by the Spirit. How important is that to you? There are a lot of churches that have a high view of preaching and a high view of the Word of God, and everybody goes home every week happy. They feel great about themselves every week. And we could listen to the the sermons and we could say it's exegetically correct. He walked straight through the text. He didn't say anything unorthodox. And everybody went home the same way they came. Because it wasn't brought home to stick in their heart. It wasn't brought like a finger on a sword to press by the Spirit. I hope you would say, I'm not crazy about that, but I want it. I need it. I need to be sanctified by the truth. That's how you know you have a high view of preaching and a high view of the Word of God when you're ready to say, Lord, cut me, whatever it takes. How important is it to you that men be raised up from our own number to preach the Word? Hopefully you see that as a priority of the church. You know, we have the pastoral epistles that kind of tell, Paul tells Timothy and Titus how to function in the church. And he tells Timothy, the things that you heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, teach to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That is a priority of the ministry in the church. How important is that? How important is it to you that your son be a preacher? I hope that every one of us with sons are already thinking, I want them to be preachers. I'm going to do whatever it takes to see them and push them that way. And if the providence of God steers them another way, praise the Lord. They've they've dodged that. But my goal is to raise men because the most urgent need in the Christian church is true preaching. We need more preachers. Is that important to you? How important is it to you that the Word of God come in power every Lord's day? And do you pray for these things? What weight of importance do you ascribe to the preaching of God's Word? Your answer will be found in direct proportion to the amount of time you spend praying for those who minister the Word and for the ministry of the Word. The the men who do it and the act of doing it. See, it's very easy to say, I have a high view of preaching. Well, at our church, we preach for an hour. We only believe in expository preaching. That, that kind of puffs us up. When the Scripture says, you ought to be praying, the importance you ascribe is directly proportionate to the amount of time that you're spend in, spending in prayer, preparing for that hour to meet with God. And so, without apology and without any embarrassment, I want to plead with you, brothers, on, for myself, for every man who's going to stand behind this pulpit and open the Word of God, pray for us. You don't, you don't know what to pray for just yet, because I'm going to tell you. But you can read the Scripture. You can, you can get a pretty good idea. Pray. I promise you, in, in the bulk of the scenarios where people are going home saying, well, I'm just not being fed... In a lot of those situations, they're not praying for the preacher. They're not praying for those who are ministering the Word. In a bulk of the scenarios where men want to be faithful to the Word, but they see churches decline, 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 it's because nobody's praying. Men who burn out in the ministry, it's because nobody's praying for them. So pray for us. The reason that we get to pray, as was said, is because the way has been opened by Christ's death. We have boldness to pray. We are beckoned to pray because of what Christ has done. The way to the throne of God has been made by Christ who's gone before us. He's the forerunner. And so as we come to the Lord's table, let's, let's give our attention to His death, that, that event in time which opens up the way of the people of God into the presence of God, and then we'll come into His presence and we'll, we'll eat together. So consider the cross and then we'll, we'll come to the table.